Well, Forefront, it's so good to be with you this morning. Thanks for joining us. If you have your Bibles, let's grab those and we'll open up to the book of James. And we'll be in James chapter 5 for most of our time this morning. You know, for the last 11 weeks, we've been walking through this amazing letter of James. And today we come to an end as we wrap up this, this series that we've been calling Get Real. And we've been talking about how do we get real with our faith. You know, a few years ago, uh, Courtney was telling me the story about her, her mother and, and father. My uh, mother and father-in-law uh, got married in the early 80s and a few years ago decided it was time to upgrade their wedding rings. So if you've ever done that before, they went to the jewelry store and they picked out some rings they thought really were going to be a great fit. So they bought these new rings and you know, they, they wore them for years. Well, a couple of years ago, my mother-in-law decided it was time to take a ring in and get it cleaned. And so she took it in, she gave it to the jeweler, and they said, hey, we'll call you when it's done. A couple hours later, the jeweler calls. And she says, hey, tell me about this ring. Oh, well, you know, I've had it for such and such time. And she said, here's what's weird is we cleaned it, and then we noticed that it's not a real diamond. She said, it's a, it's a cubic zirconia. And she said, well, there's no way. There's no way that's true. I've actually never given that ring to anybody, I've actually never really, I've always cleaned it on my own. It's always been on my finger. And she said, well, where'd you get it? And she said, well, I got it at such and such jewelry store near where they lived. And so she said, well, I would recommend you call that jewelry store. And this had been years. So she called the jewelry store up and said, hey, I took the ring in to get it cleaned. And they told me that it's not real, that it's a fake. And she said, oh, yeah, about that. She said, years ago, we bought some diamonds from a, from a company that came through. Turned out they were fakes. I said, well, thanks for letting me know. And so they actually refunded her diamond, gave her a bigger diamond, and she went away happy. But I just think for years, my mother-in-law walked around with a beautiful stone on her finger that she showed to everybody as real and authentic, but it turned out to be a fake. This entire letter of James, James has been talking to us about how do we tell if our faith is real. That a lot of us, we, we find ourselves walking through life we, we move from stage to stage in life, and we think what, come, what we look like on the outside demonstrates our faith, but really what we've been showing is that we've been carrying around something we thought was real, but was really inauthentic the entire time. So for these last 11 weeks, James has been walking us through, how do we tell if our faith is real? How, how do we get real with our faith, and how do we tell if what is coming out of our lives is authentic? Because a lot of times we look at our lives and we think, hey, yeah, I go to church and I read my Bible and, and I try to do my best to pray and I try to do all these things. But if we looked at our life, how would we know if our faith truly was genuine? So James talks about the, the, the way you know if your faith is real is not by how you look on the outside and not even about how you feel about yourself, but it's by what comes out of you. So he, he says things like, you can tell your faith is authentic by the way you deal with trials. Or you can tell your faith is authentic by the quality of your relationships. Are you fighting all the time? You can tell if your faith is real by your view towards money and how you pray. And today, as we fit the pieces of the puzzle together, as we wrap up this study, which I've had a blast teaching, James is going to show us how do we tell if our lifestyle is embodying an authentic faith, and how do we, as we go through the ups and downs of life, keep it real. So if you have your Bibles, let's look. We'll start in James chapter one, and I, I purposefully held back a verse, a very important verse from James chapter 1. I apologize, in, you know, in hindsight. But I feel like it comes together so perfectly with chapter 5. 
Because I think James brings chapter 1 and chapter 5 together to give us that perfect picture of what it looks like to live an authentic faith and how our lifestyle can keep it real, can continue to show how real our faith is. So let's back up all the way to chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. You're going to see one of the more famous and more popular verses in the book of James. So let's start there. James chapter 1, verse 26. James says this. He says, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Forefront, this is the word of the Lord. You know, James says a word in verse 26 that causes much of the world to kind of tighten up a little bit. There's a word that James uses here that has a stigma attached to it. Do you guys catch it? It's the word religion. You know, if you went out and talked to your friends and asked them, what does the word religion mean to you? You're going to get a lot of different answers. But there is a connotation with that, world, or with that word religion. And it, it has something to do with the idea of trying to come into a relationship with God that, that has something to do with our own merit. So if you look around the religions of the world, and you look at Islam, or you look at, you look at Hindu, or you look at Sikhism, you look at really any religion of the world, there's, within that religion there's this idea that I'm doing something to climb the mountain to God, that I'm doing something to earn God's favor. So when James says religion, I think it stands out to us, and it causes us to, to kind of tighten up a, a little bit. And I think this line of thinking of religion, of me needing to do something to earn God's love or God's grace or God's favor, it's, it's really kind of stuck into the church too. You know, we see this idea of moralistic theistic, moralistic, the, uh, theistic deism, moralistic therapeutic deism in the church. It's a mouthful. And it's this idea that, that if I'm a good person, that God's going to love me. If I do more good than bad, then God's going to accept me. That if I have more credits than debits in my account, then God's going to extend me an invitation to heaven someday. So when James says religion, we kind of go, uh-huh, okay, yeah, uh-huh, religion. But when James says religion, he doesn't mean a set of rules, or he doesn't mean something that we're climbing a ladder or working our way up a mountain. James is talking about our lifestyle. I like to think of it this way. That when we talk about the Christian faith, that the foundation of who we are and what we do is not a list of do's and don'ts. It's not a list of do this to earn God's love and don't do that so you can be accepted by God. Because as Christians, there's nothing we can do to earn the grace of God. If the grace of God is not earned, it's given. That the grace of God in, in our lives is nothing that we can earn or climb to get it. It doesn't matter how often you go to church. It doesn't matter how loud you pray. It doesn't have, you can be baptized as many times as an Olympic swimmer, and it's still not going to get you the grace of God. Why is that? Because the grace of God is not earned. The grace of God is given. And the grace of God is given through faith in Jesus Christ. The only thing that can make us right with God is trusting Jesus. Amen, forefront? And so when James uses this word religion, I don't know if this word is the right word. Because the reality is that none of us can be good enough on our own to ever earn God's grace. And you know how this is true? We can play the Ten Commandment game again. You guys remember the Ten Commandment game from a few weeks ago? How many of us got 100%? None of us, right? Fail, fail, fail. And it's the reality that we can't earn God's 
grace on our own. So one of the themes we've been talking about throughout this entire letter of James is that what James is telling us about God is that God doesn't want perfection. God wants a pattern. God wants our lives to, to be patterned after Jesus. That God doesn't expect perfection. He wants progress. He wants our life to be marked by a heart that wants to, to do and to be more like Jesus and to live in a way that we show and extend the love of God. So when James says worship or religion here, I think probably the better translation of this word is the word is worship. You know, when you think of worship, we, we think of what we just did, right? We sing songs. We sing songs, get a hand in the air. But worship isn't just music. Worship is a way of life. Worship is a lifestyle. I like to think about it like this. Religion, let's define these terms. Religion communicates an outward expression of a desire to earn God's grace in our lives. That there's this outward expression that I'm doing something to earn God's grace. God, I belong. God, accept me. God, love me because I'm good enough. But worship is different. Notice worship. So I, I, like, I think worship is better defined this way. Worship is the outward expression that reveals God's grace in our life. Do you guys see the difference? One is trying to earn God's grace. The other is revealing God's grace in our life. So worship is the way that we live our life in response to the grace that God has given us through Jesus Christ. That's worship. And so we, we come in here and we sing these songs and we put our hand in the air and we hold our hands and, you know, we do this one, right? The, you know, like the, the holy shuffle, right? As we, as we sing these songs to God. But we don't do that so God will love us. We do that because he loves us. We, we come in and we open our Bibles and we pray. We don't do that so God will love us. We do that because God loves us. We serve our neighbor and we, we tell people about Jesus and we care for people who have needs. Not so God will love us, but because God does love us. And we treat people with respect and dignity at work and at home in the neighborhood. Not so God will love us, but why forefront? Because God loves us. See, that's a demonstration of a lifestyle of worship. And worship is a natural extension of God's grace in our life. There's this really beautiful story in John chapter 4 where Jesus is he's, he's traveling through Samaria, which he didn't need to. He went way out of the way because he had a purpose, and he stops at this well, and he meets this Samaritan woman. He starts to have this conversation with her. And she's there at, 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 a, at the, the not opportune time of the day because she didn't want to be seen by anybody to get water. And Jesus approaches her, and he says, hey, can I have a drink? And so she says, sure. And Jesus says, that water right there that you're drinking from, you'll drink it, and then you'll be thirsty again. He said, but the water that I give, it's an eternal water. And it will form a spring in your soul and in your heart, and you will never be thirsty again. And she says, can I have some of this water? He said, that water comes from me. And at this moment, they have this exchange where Jesus speaks to her heart, and all of a sudden she believes that this, this is the Son of God. This is the, the one that I've been waiting on. It's the one we've all been waiting on, the Savior of the world. And so she runs into town. And she tells everybody she sees, hey, you need to come out outside of town to the well because there's a guy out here who's the son of God. There's a guy out here who told me everything I ever did. And so people believed. They put their faith in Jesus. But what you see in this woman is not a religion, or you don't see her trying to do something to earn God's grace. She realizes she brings nothing to the table, but her heart has changed because of God's grace. But she didn't just go read old scrolls and sit in her room and pray. She went and told everybody she met about Jesus. 
See, there's an extension of our lives that, that changes when we have our hearts changed by God. And so worship is an expression. Worship is an outpouring of what God has done in our life. And so James tells us that real faith, real faith extends through you and pours out of you into the lives of other people. Vance Pittman, he's a pastor in Las Vegas. I love what he says. Notice he says, the experience of the grace of God in our lives always, not sometimes or often, always results in the expression of the grace of God towards others. It always pours out and, and, and spills out into us. So when you and I experience this grace, it spills out and it, it changes the way I talk to people. It changes the way I treat my wife. It changes the way I treat my kids. It changes the way I act at work. It changes the way I interact with my neighbors because that's God's grace in my life pouring out into yours. And James says that our lives become pastors of God's grace. If you've ever done a remodeling project at home, or you've ever worked construction, you, you know what this is, right? I know a few of you are currently in some remodeling projects. So you probably have a lot of this at home, PVC pipe. But what does this do? See, this is a conduit for water to run from one point to another. And so what James is really telling us is that our lives become conduits of God's grace. Now, this is a big conduit, but it's a conduit nevertheless. See, our lives become a conduit of God's grace, that God's grace in our lives pour through us into the lives of other people. So when you think of your life, when you think of your relationships and how you go to school or how you work or the people in your family, are you showing God's grace? Is God's grace pouring through your life into another? I like how A.W. Tozer says it. He says that the true worship, worship that is pleasing to God, radiates throughout a person's entire life. And so what James is saying right here in chapter 1, when, we, when we're going we're gonna to book in this book, he's saying that if what you are worshiping, is your, if your life isn't spilling out into the life of other people, then you have to ask the question, is my faith genuine and authentic? And if it is genuine and authentic, is my life keeping it real? Because if your faith and your worship of God doesn't pour out into the lives of other people, then James says it's actually useless and meaningless, which is pretty hard to hear. So as we, as we wrap up this series, what I want to do is I want to ask the question, what does a lifestyle of worship look like? What is a lifestyle of, of letting God's grace in our life pour out in the lives of others look like? And I think in this text, and then we're going to book in with James chapter 5, we're going to see James gives us three indicators to tell if our life is really demonstrating God's grace or not. So notice what he says. Now, this is an exhaustive, exhaustive list, but I think these give us some really good brackets and buckets to look at in life. And here's the first one that James tells us in James 1, verse 26. He says this, that a lifestyle of worship is, is shown through the way I speak. Now, you can see what God is doing in your life, and you outpour the grace of God through your life by the words that you actually say. Look at verse 26 again. He says this, he says that if anyone thinks that he is religious, if anyone thinks that he is living a lifestyle of worship and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Again, hard language that James uses. Now, if you've been working with us through this book, you've noticed that James talks about our words a lot. I mean, chapter 3 is pretty much all about words. James talks about words a lot because I think James is wanting us to see that the words we say are a barometer for our heart. That what comes out of you is an indication of what is inside of you. 
And so if you want to know how real your faith is, how authentic your faith is, or how demonstrable your lifestyle of worship is, look at your words. Jesus and his disciples in Matthew 15 were out, and they were, um, they were out walking around, and they were picking these heads of grain as they were walking, because they were hungry, right? And so they were picking these heads of grain, and the religious leaders didn't like it. So they start giving Jesus and the guys a hard time. They start to say, why, they said to Jesus, why do you guys eat without washing your hands? Now, of course, we all wash our hands like crazy now, but back in those days, it was a tradition. In Hebrew tradition, it was important to wash your hands because it indicated that you weren't going to be putting anything dirty in your body. And so Jesus calls them out. He said, it's not what you put in that defiles you. It's what comes out. Notice what he says in verse 18. He says, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. So Jesus is saying, and then Jesus' little brother James is saying, that if you want to know what's in your heart, look what comes out of your heart. Look at the words that you say. And so James would say, the way you speak to your kids or your spouse or your friend or your parents when you leave church is more indicative of your heart than the things that you do while you're in church. That if you walk out of church and the other 167 hours a week, hell is breaking loose from your mouth, it's an indication of what's going on in your heart. No matter how loud you sang, no matter how hard you prayed, or how many times you said, amen. Your heart reveals what's, or your words reveal what's going on in your heart. Like David Platt says, notice David Platt. He says this, he says, don't deceive yourself Again, don't deceive yourself. When you speak, you tell the truth about your heart. That hurts some of us. That cuts some of us. That cuts me a lot. Don't deceive yourself. When you speak, your words reveal your heart. So what do your words say about you? What do your words this week say about you? What words did you say this morning when you were running late to get to church? What do your words reveal about your heart? Notice what James says in verse 26. He talks about if he does not bridle his tongue. Any horse people in here? Anybody ever grow up taking horseback lessons? Nobody? We truly do live in Denver. Okay, we got one. We got, we got one. Okay, so if you spend any time around horses, you know that often what they do is they put the bit and the bridle around the horse, and then there'll be reins that the rider will hold on to to steer the horse left and right. And so the bit goes in the horse's mouth, the bridle goes around its, its face, and then the rider holds the reins. So when James says that when we don't bridle our tongue, James has given us this word picture that we're holding on to the reins. When instead we need God to hold on to the reins. So James is saying that we actually need to give the reins of our heart and our words to the Holy Spirit because he's the one that's going to direct us and guide us and, and lead us to where we need to go. Because when we hold the reins, we get all off base and we get off the path. So James says we need to bridle our words. Because they're an indication of our heart. I like how David Platt continues. Notice what he says. He says, keep a tight rein on your tongue and speak in a way that shows your faith is real and the core of your heart belongs to God. So forefront, as you think about the words that you say, as you think about the, the things that you say, what does it reveal about your heart? So James says we can see if we're living a lifestyle of worship by the words we say, but notice a second, we can see if we're living a lifestyle by the people we serve. That a lifestyle of worship is shown by the way I actually serve people. Look back at verse 27. 
It's the, the famous verse from James 1. It says this. He says, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. The word affliction means pressure. It means squeezed. It's like anybody love those little oranges you get at King Supers, those cuties? You know what I'm talking about? Coming in like a little box and a little green bag, and you just like fight forever to get the bag open until you realize you can't tear it open and you got to get the scissors. I do it every time. For, I got my keys in there and it's not working, you know? It's like, imagine one of those in your hand, right? And then you squeeze it. The juice starts to come out, right? James is saying that real lifestyle of worship and authentic worship pours into other people who are going through affliction, who are walking through difficult times. And he gives us this example of orphans and widows. Now, again, this is not an exhaustive list, but there's a reason he gives us orphan and widows. This doesn't mean that it's just orphans and it's just widows, but think back to James' context. James 1. James writes this letter in like the 40s, AD 40, mid-40s. The most vulnerable population of people in the first century were orphans and widows. There was no government systems for widows. There was no orphanages per se. There were some things, but not much. And so the most vulnerable people were orphans and widows. They didn't have people to take care of them. So James says it's the church's responsibility to take care of the vulnerable, to take care of the oppressed, the afflicted, those who have been impacted negatively by life, who feel squeezed. And so James is saying people who have had their hearts changed by Jesus, who live a lifestyle of worship, take care of the vulnerable, serve the vulnerable people in their community. And that's people who have been impacted mentally and physically. That's people who are afflicted spiritually. That's people who have been impacted by economic problems and challenges. And we look at this last year and a half that we've been in, and we know those numbers are continuing to grow. That all around us are people who are in this category, who are vulnerable. And James says, don't rely on somebody else to take care of them. It's your responsibility if you're living an authentic lifestyle of worship. There's this really, really amazing scene in Luke chapter 4. And so Jesus is ramping up his ministry. Most people don't know who he is yet except those who are in his local towns. And he, he, his custom was he would go to the synagogue and then he would read. And so in Luke chapter 4, Jesus gets up, and this is really his like, pronouncement into who he is and what he came to do. And, and notice this. Notice what he says in Luke chapter 4. He stands up. He grabs I, the scroll from Isaiah 61, and he says this. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he sets back down, and everybody's eyes are on him because he just said, that's me. That's why I came. I'm the man that Isaiah was writing about 700 years before. And we see that Jesus had a mission, and he came to bring the good news. He came to give his life for the world, but he also came to bring hope to those who were downtrodden and afflicted and were being crushed by life. And when Jesus leaves and he gives us our mission, you know what he says? He says, you go do the same. You go and help and do the same. So our mission, as James tells us, is to be on mission to do this very thing, to help those who are vulnerable. And forefront, this is what we should be wanting to be known for as a church. 
Like, Forefront should want to be known in this city as the beacon of hope where people who are vulnerable and are being crushed and squeezed and afflicted can come and find hope and come and find peace. And, and not just false words, but people that want to lean in and help. This is our mission. And this is why we partner with amazing partners like Community Ministry, who in a month see 1,200 people who are walking through vulnerable and afflicted and difficult seasons that serve three to 400 families, providing them with food and backpack supplies and Thanksgiving dinners, helping those who have needs. This is why we partner with groups like Building Guate in Guatemala, who purposefully set up a community around a trash dump of people who are digging in the trash for food to provide them jobs and a nutrition center and a pregnancy center and homes. This is why at Forefront, our heart is to serve those in our community. That's why we have groups like Project Service, where you can sign up and actually get involved in people's lives and taking care of the ones that Jesus came to provide hope for. This is the mission that God calls us on. Billy Graham says this. He says that the highest form of worship is the worship of unselfish Christian service. And so you might say, I'm not doing very good at this. There's a lot of ways for you to get involved. If you say right now in my life, I'm not really serving. I don't see an outpouring. My, maybe my words demonstrate my heart, but my service doesn't. I'd encourage you to pull out our app and go and sign up for our project service group. Because it's one way for you to start getting involved in helping the vulnerable and the people that are walking through tough times. But God has put in your life people in your circle, in your, in, in your neighborhood, at work, who are vulnerable and, and who are afflicted. And Jesus and James are telling us it's time to step in and demonstrate a lifestyle of worship by the people we serve. So James is saying here that we demonstrate our heart by serving others. I like how Isaiah says it. He says this. He says, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, Bring justice to the fatherless and plead the widow's case. This is our call, and this is how we reflect God's grace as a conduit from us to others. So how do we tell if we're living a lifestyle of worship? It's by the words we say. It's by the people we serve. But look at, look at, at third here. A life of worship is shown by protecting others from drift. Notice how James ends this entire book. James doesn't end the book by saying, go off and have a great day, have a good life, I love you, blessings. James comes back around one more time and hits us with the full thing. Notice this, chapter 5, verse 19 and 20. Notice how James ends this entire amazing letter. He says, get real, my brothers. If anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. When the pandemic started, how many of you guys got pandemic puppies? Any pandemic puppies in here? A couple of pandemic puppies. So we decided we were going to get a pandemic puppy. So we've always wanted an English bulldog, and so we got on one of those rescue adoption sites, and we found this guy. He was five months old, and he was down in Colorado Springs. His name's Odie. So we went and got Odie, and Odie's amazing. Um, I'm sure there's been some times when my words did not reflect an authentic lifestyle because of Odie chewing on stuff, but Odie's a great dog. Well, last summer, we were, I was out doing some things, and the gate got left open in the backyard, and Odie got out. 
And Courtney called me, and she was pretty upset. Can't find Odie, can't find Odie. Searching the house. And she, so she's out knocking doors in the neighborhood, looking around. And it, it, was, it was probably a good hour and a half, and we couldn't find Odie. I'm driving home to get back, and everybody's really worried and upset. And so she comes across our neighbor across the street, and she's like, hey, have you seen my dog? And he's like, well, what does your dog look like? He's, looks like this. And she said, yeah, actually, I have seen your dog, but I didn't know where he went. So I took him to the, anim, to the Foothills Animal Shelter. And I'm like, dude, you live across the street. Like, pay attention, man. We're like right here. But anyways, we drove up to the Foothills Animal Shelter, and there he was. And we're like, microchip this guy. Please, you know, let's never let this happen again. But we got him home, and we're like just relieved. And there's this like sense of joy, right? Like, here's this puppy that we love so much, and he wandered away. And we were worried we'd never see him again. I mean, he's a good-looking guy, right? A lot of people would like to have this dog. You know, I think of... What James says here, you know, James is saying that we should never stop looking for those who are wandering. And we should never stop chasing after those who have drifted away. That as God's people, uh, authentic lifestyle is demonstrated by people who have a desire to walk step in step with their brothers and sisters in Christ so that we don't drift, so that we don't wander away. And so those that do, we help bring them back to God. You know, there's a debate amongst scholars that who, who's James talking to here? Is he talking to Christians who, who wandered away and lost their faith? Like, is it possible to lose your salvation? Is he talking to Christians who had maybe just drifted because of lifestyle? Or is he talking to non-believers? But, but look back at, at verse 19. Notice what he says. He says, my brothers, my brothers and sisters, if anyone drifts, if anyone wanders, He's talking to us, and he's saying that there's a reality amongst all of us that we have to recognize is that it's easy to wander, and it's easy to drift. All right, I want a moment of honesty here, okay? We're all amongst friends and family. How many of you have been following Jesus for at least 10 years? Raise your hand. Keep your hands up. 20 years, 30 years. Keep them up. Okay, those of you, right? I I did that backwards, by the way, but you know what I was doing. How many of you, in the time you've been following Jesus, found out that you maybe drifted a little bit? Maybe you wandered just a little bit. Maybe you weren't as faithful reading your Bibles. Or Keep them hands up. Keep them hands up. If you put your hand down, we need to play the Ten Commandment game again, okay? <laughs> reality is we all drift. We all wander. It's a reality of life. Tony Evans says it this way when talking about this verse. He says that there are two options. Regression or progression, there's no such thing as static Christianity. A Christian cannot shift into neutral or idle for a while. You can either move forward or you can slide backwards. If you're not moving forward, then you're automatically drifting backwards. And James is saying this is a reality for all of us. And this is a reality we've all experienced. We've all drifted. We've all wandered. But as authentic worship, as a lifestyle of authentic worship, we should be passionate to help people come back to help walk step in step with people, to draw them back to the truth of Jesus and who he is. But here's the good news. Even though we drift, even though we wander from time to time, if you've placed your faith in Jesus and you know Jesus as your Savior, you've put Jesus first in your life, no matter if you drift, no matter if you wander, you don't have to worry because your salvation is secure. Because Jesus came and gave his life for you. You didn't earn it. And so when God saves you, You are saved for good, Forefront, and that's a slam dunk. Amen? It doesn't give us permission to wander and drift, 
But it helps give us comfort to know that as the world pulls and, and leads us in different directions sometimes, that God is always faithful to chase after us, to bring us home. I love what Jesus says in John 10. Notice what he says. He says that nothing can take you away from the love of God when you put Jesus in your life. Look, he says, my sheep hear my voice. My people hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. you hear that? It doesn't matter. Nothing can snatch you out of the hand of Jesus if you put your faith in him. You are eternally secure, 100%. That's a slam dunk. You can take that to the bank. He says, my father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. God is greater than all. And that's really good news. Because of that, we can work together to help bring our brothers and sisters back to Jesus, who's always there and always faithful. Back in Missouri, when I grew up, we used to go floating. Some, some of you ever been floating before? Some of you might be from Nebraska where you go tanking. That's weird, but tanking. Or maybe grab your inner tubes and do a little whitewater rafting, right? But you know when you get on a tube and you don't have a paddle, what are you going to do? Just going to go wherever the current takes you, right? And so sometimes you get off and you drift and you wander and you'd go off to different ways. And that's what life does to us. So James is just making sure we're aware that life is going to try to do that to you. And for some of us, we drift, or people in our lives drift because of good things. New job, kids are in sports, busy times. And so we begin to drift just a little bit. We begin to move down the, the, the path just a little bit. The reality is, as the old saying goes, if the devil can't make you bad, he's going to make you busy. Sometimes a busy life leads us to take our eyes off of Jesus just a little bit. But sometimes it's not good things that cause people to drift. Sometimes it's sin. You know, they say that sin is like a big dog that just escalates and escalates and escalates. The more you wrestle with my, my boy Odie, the more he gets worked up. The only way I can stop him is to turn my back because he just wants to fight. He just wants to wrestle. That's what sin does to us. And so unless we turn our back on sin, sin's going to continue to elevate and elevate and elevate until it's out of control. And so when sin sneaks in and we fall into a pattern that is outside of what God wants for our life, it's so easy for us to drift and it's so easy for us to wander. And what happens is we begin to spend just a little less time in God's word. We begin to come to church just a little less often. We begin to talk to our Christian friends just a little bit less. And the next thing we know, we're, it's been a while since we've read and our speech has changed and the people we're spending time with has changed and we've been taken by the current and drifted off. But here's the good news. The Bible tells us that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And so when we direct ourselves back to this book, and this book is the filter for our life, God always brings us home. Amen? That God always directs us back. And that God wants us to use this as the filter to help bring other people back too. See, the reality is this book will either keep you from sinning or sin will keep you from this book. So this has to be the bedrock and the foundation for our lives. Because Paul says in Ephesians 6 that our battle isn't just with flesh and blood, but our battles with the enemy and the powers of darkness. So we need to be able to put on the armor of God to be able to go to war with the drift and the distraction that so easily comes. So James says real faith, real faith protects others from drift. Real faith helps protect others from 
wandering. And then notice what he says. I'm going to, this is the last verse we're going to read, verse 20. Notice what he says. Look at the reward. He says, but let him know, let her know that anyone who brings a sinner back from his wandering will save his soul from death and recover a multitude of sins. James is saying that when you bring somebody back, maybe that was someone who said they believed in Jesus but wandered away and they never really believed, you're bringing them back and saving their soul. But for the Christian who wandered, from the, for the brother or sister who got distracted or who, who sin snuck in and pulled them off, you're saving them from a multitude of sins. You're saving them from a lifestyle of falling into heartache and, and, and consequence and mess by bringing them back to Jesus. So who do you know that's drifted? As you read those words, who's God bringing to your heart that you know that's wandered away, that God's put it on your heart to help bring them back? Let me close with this. Last Thanksgiving, the pandemic was going crazy, and we didn't want to go home and see family because we didn't want to get anybody sick. So we decided we're going to go to Sedona. So we drove 12 hours through the night and got to Sedona, rented a little cheap hotel right outside of town. And by God's providence, across the street from the hotel happened to be a Dunkin' Donuts. Now, I believe that one of God's common mercies in life is coffee. I'm a big fan, and since there was no Cafe Olay or Atlas Coffee in Sedona, Dunkin' Donuts was going to be where I went. And just so you know, I believe that Dunkin' Donuts iced caramel lattes are delightful. And so it's just a good thing to add to your daily regimen. But right across the street from the hotel was the Dunkin' Donuts, but between the hotel and the Dunkin' Donuts was a four-lane, really busy road, a state highway with a stoplight. And so me and the girls decided we didn't want to drive, we're going to walk. So every day we got up in the morning and we walked across that street, but four lanes of traffic, a couple turn lanes, really busy intersection. I couldn't let my kids go on their own. Because if you know little ones, they don't listen very well. And they like to drift and they like to wander. So I grabbed, I got three girls, right? So I'm like two hands in one, one hand in the other. I'm walking, you know, and I'm like, I'm like the inspector gadget, you know, walking across the street. Every day we did that. And it was such a simple thing, but it's just a picture of the way that God wants us to walk. Because between us, right outside of our lives, is this main highway full of sin and distraction and drift. So God is calling us to walk together, hand in hand, step by step together, as we live out a lifestyle of worship. And so James says, guys, get real with your faith. Because God has called you into the most beautiful story you could ever imagine, something that's bigger than you something that's better than you could ever experience on your own. And he's called us to do it together. And he's called us to be the conduit to show God's grace to one another. So here's my challenge for you as we wrap up this series and as we move into our regular week, is to ask the question this week. If I asked a friend about my life and what they see, what do my words reveal about my faith? Who am I serving? And do I have the desire to protect my brothers and sisters? people in the church, the people in my life from the drift that so easily pulls us away. So you may be here today and there's somebody that comes to mind. Here's what I encourage you to do. As soon as you leave today, or get some lunch first, send them a text. Hey, I was thinking about you. Let's meet up, grab lunch, grab coffee. Be an encouragement to them to help point them back to Jesus. Maybe you're here today. Maybe you're tuning in online today and this is the first time you've watched in a long time that your Bible is getting a little dusty. Jesus is calling you back right now. He's saying, come home. I'm right here. I'm always here. 
If you're in the room today, we've got connection cards in the seat back, and there's a place that says, I recommit my life to Jesus. Today, when we pray here in a moment, you can say, Jesus, I recommit my life to you. I have drifted, and I have wandered, and it's time for me to come home. If you're online, you can do that on our app. And know that we want to pray for you. We want to walk with you through this. Maybe you've never made the decision to put Jesus first in your life. And you've been coming to church, and you've been singing songs, and you've been wearing that ring, but you didn't realize that at the heart of that ring was something that wasn't authentic. Jesus is calling you today just to put it out there and to say, Jesus, come into my life and save me. Be my Savior. And when you put Jesus first in your life, it doesn't just change the snap of a finger, but over time, God begins to change you from the inside out. And he sets you on a path to life and calls you to an authentic lifestyle where God's grace flows you into the lives of others. And when we do that together at Forefront, it's then that we can truly change the world. So let's get on that mission together.